Today's scripture reading comes from Genesis chapter 4, verses 16 to 26. This is the reading of God's word. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain made love to his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city, and he named it after his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad was the father of Mahujael, and Mahujael was the father of Methushael, and Methushael was the father of Lamech. Lamech married two women, one named Ada and the other Zillah. Ada gave birth to Jubal. He was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who play stringed instruments and pipes. Zillah also had a son, Tubal Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Tubal Cain's sister was Nama. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain was avenged seven times, then Lamech seventy-seven times. Adam made love to his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son, and he named him Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we have reached the end of our series through the first four chapters of Genesis. You know, in some ways, this series has preached itself. I haven't had to think about a sermon illustration in eight weeks because I don't think there's a better sermon illustration that captures the unraveling of God's perfect world than America in 2020. We are witnessing firsthand what happens when human beings take matters into their own hands, when human beings put themselves in the place of God, when we blatantly disregard our calling as God's ambassadors on earth. You know, I no longer need to convince you that our world is broken. You just need to turn on the news for five minutes to understand just how broken our world is, how far we've drifted from the picture of creation that we find in Genesis 1 and 2. And we've spent this entire series talking about why we are the way we are and how we've gotten to this point. And last week we looked at the story of Cain and Abel and how sin, when left unchecked, can grow and grow and grow into something that's absolutely devastating and uncontrollable. And when God confronts Cain about killing his brother, Cain's response should cut a hole in all of our hearts this morning. He says, am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's keeper? You know, I've been coming back to that line over and over again all week. Every time I'm tempted to look away or respond passively to everything that's been going on. Because I have to be constantly reminded that it's because generations of people, when confronted with their sin, chose to respond this way. Am I my brother's keeper? That we are where we are today. And so we pick up the story today in verse 17. Just to recap, by this point, Cain has been cursed to live a life of restless wandering apart from the presence of God. In verse 16, we read that he settled in the land of Nod, which can be translated as the land of restless wandering. 
And so from this point on, we're going to see a picture of what life looks like without God, what culture and cities and families look like when you take God out of the equation. You know, St. Augustine wrote a famous book called The City of God. And in it, he talks about the world as a tale of two cities, one earthly and one heavenly. The earthly city, also known as the city of man, is marked by people who live for themselves, who live for their own glory, who live to pursue worldly pleasures. The heavenly city, also known as the city of God, is marked by people who live for God's glory, who live to serve God and to serve neighbor. And this is how he puts it. He says, The city of God is a place where the inhabitants love people and walk on gold. The city of man is a place where the inhabitants love gold and walk on people. And we're going to see both in our text today. We're going to see a city centered on the purposes and plans of man, contrasted with a city centered on the purposes and plans of God. And the question I want all of us to ask ourselves today is, which city are you living in? Which city are we living in? Is it a city that loves people and uses things? Or is it a city that loves things and uses people? And so if you're taking notes, there are just going to be two points today. The city of man and the city of God. Number one, the city of man. Notice what it says in verse 17. Cain made love to his wife and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city and he named it after his son Enoch. So what we have here is Cain now starting to build his life without God, seeking meaning and security on his own terms. And the way he does it isn't so different from the way we do it. He gets married, he has kids, he settles down, he starts building himself the first city, which is literally just a fortified settlement that protects his family and provides stability. I mean, Cain is living the American dream. And he names this city after his son Enoch. And this is significant because many scholars believe that this is a blatant act of defiance against God. Because what Cain is doing when he names his city after his own son is he's trying to make a lasting name for himself. He's trying to cement his own legacy. He's trying to seek significance apart from God. Well, what does Cain's city consist of? Well, in verses 18 and 19, we see a list of his descendants, which means you have families. In verse 20, we see farmers. In verse 21, we see musicians. In verse 22, we see tools and technological advancements. Looks very similar to the world we live in today. You have children, culture, communities, and careers. Well, does that mean that all these things then are inherently bad? Well, it can't mean that because we know that God loves families. In fact, in Genesis 1, the first thing God says after he creates mankind in his own image is he blesses them and he says, be fruitful and multiply. We also know God values all work. We talked about how work was a part of God's original design. Adam himself was a farmer commissioned to rule over the livestock and all the wild animals. We also know God loves music and culture. In Psalm 150, it says, Praise him with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise him with the harp and lyre. And we absolutely know God loves cities. In Jeremiah 29, 7, in the famous verse, it says, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. 
In fact, the culminating image of the entire Bible is not a garden, it's a city. If you turn with me to Revelation 21 verses 1 and 2, it says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. In other words, it's not the city itself or the things that happen in the city that God is opposed to. No, he's opposed to the heart of man who seeks to create a world without God. We want the kingdom without the king. We want security, but we don't want it from God. We want meaning and significance, but we don't want it from God. We want love and acceptance, but we don't want it from God. And when we begin to build the kingdom without the king, what ends up happening every time is we begin to fill the emptiness we feel in our lives with things that were never meant to fill it. You know, Los Angeles is the perfect example of this. On the outside, it looks like a perfect utopia. Progressive, full of woke people, a place where people come to pursue their dreams, a place where we're all about love and acceptance. Why do we need God? We've created a perfect city without God, said no one ever in 2020. We are seeing cities, progressive cities like LA, all start to be exposed. You know, I was on that Zoom chat this past week with the LAPD commission, and they were getting shredded left and right. It was pure, utter outrage from beginning to end. And over and over again, I was hearing the same things from everyone calling in. They were saying things like, we never knew our city was like this. We thought LA was better than this. You know, I've been living in this city for 40 years and for the first time I'm seeing it for what it really is. You see, LA is the perfect example of building a kingdom without the king. This is what happens. And it doesn't take us long to realize that Cain's seemingly perfect life and family is all an illusion. And it takes us a few generations to really start to see the cracks show, but the cracks always start to show because this is the way sin works. You know, I'm sorry, but if you see what happened to George Floyd as just a singular, isolated incident, then you are truly not understanding the power of generational sin. That sin is like an avalanche. That what starts as a seemingly harmless thought or feeling compounded over time can become behavior, then can become communal practices, then becomes law, and then becomes a complex, intricate system of oppression that gets woven into the fabric of our society. And this is what we see in Genesis 4. By the time Cain's line gets down to Lamech, what begins as a small seed in Cain's heart to name a city after his son has become full-blown brokenness. The first thing we read about Lamech is that he has two wives. It's the first instance of polygamy that we see in the Bible. And it's the first instance of a time when we see man blatantly disregard God's original intent for marriage as outlined in Genesis 1. Again, this is man trying to put himself in the place of God, deciding for himself what is good and what is not good. But not only is Lamech a polygamist, we also see that he's a murderer. But he's not just any murderer, he's a proud murderer. Notice what he says in verse 23. 
Adah and Zillah, listen to me, wives of Lamech, hear my words. Right there, you already know what kind of dude this is. Because anyone who talks about himself in the third person should be avoided at all costs. Okay, but that's a, that's a different point. This is what he says. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. He's not trying to hide it like Cain did. He's owning it. And he's owning it proudly. He's so proud of what he's done that he gathers his wives together to brag about it. And if that isn't enough, listen to what he says next. He said, if Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. Meaning if God promised to protect my ancestor Cain, who was also a murderer, surely he will protect me. You see what's happening here? The sin runs so deep for Lamech that he not only justifies the murder of a young man, but he truly believes that the system will ultimately protect him. Sound familiar? It should. I'm not making this stuff up. This stuff is in the Bible because this is the way sin works. And in these two short verses, you see sexual brokenness, you see violence, you see oppression, you see pride, you see self-preservation, the whole nine. And what God is trying to show us is that the city of man, no matter how beautiful it looks from the outside, no matter how harmless it seems, no matter how secure it makes us feel, is ultimately a facade. And at some point, that veil will be lifted and all the ugliness underneath will be exposed. And that's what we're seeing right now. First, it was with COVID-19. We saw our worship of uh, work and productivity exposed. We saw our dependence on technology exposed. We saw our mistreatment of marginalized communities exposed. And now with these string of unjust murders, these things that have been happening in the black community for generations, we are seeing levels and levels of systemic racism exposed. We are seeing the city of man for what it is. You see, this is what happens when you try to build a kingdom without the king. What we have done is we have built for ourselves a city of man. And as hard and painful as 2020 has been, I think it's actually portraying us for who we really are. Now, thankfully, Genesis 4 doesn't end on that note because it goes on to give us a glimpse of another city, which brings us to the second point, the city of God. Notice how this chapter ends. After taking us through the descendants of Cain, it actually goes all the way back to Adam. Take a look at verses 25 and 26. Adam made love to his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel, since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son, and he named him Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. So just when you thought all hope was lost, that Cain's story was the only story, God graciously grants Eve another son in place of Abel, initiating a new story. You see, wherever there is death, God always grants new life. And right away, we can sense that there's something different about this story. There's something different about this line. Because Seth names his son Enosh, which means the mortal one or the frail one. Now, why would you ever want to name your son the frail one? 
Why would you ever want your son growing up being called weak by his friends and family? And yet I think that's the point. This is what distinguishes the city of man from the city of God. In the city of man, humans boast in their own strength like Lamech did. In the city of God, humans boast in their weaknesses like Seth did. I'm reminded of the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 that says this, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You know what's so interesting? Nowhere in chapter 4 is there any mention of Seth's accomplishments or anything that Seth's family did. We read all about Cain's family, how they raised livestock, how they created music and advanced culture and developed tools. Nothing like that for Seth. The only thing we read is that people began to call on the name of the Lord. In other words, the only detail worth mentioning about Seth's family was their relationship with God. And I want that to sink in for us. Because I often wonder for myself, what will people say about me at the end of my life? When I die, how will people tell my story? What did Jason stand for? Did he live his life for his own glory? To make a name for himself? Or did he live his life loving God and loving neighbor? Now this story would have been great if Seth's descendants all went on to live perfect lives. But we know this is not how the story goes. In fact, when you go to Luke chapter 3 and you look at the genealogy of Jesus, it actually draws a straight line all the way back to Seth. And in that genealogy, what you see is that even in the godly line of Seth, you see failure after failure after failure. You see people who rebelled against God's plans and purposes. You see people who tried to live apart from the presence of God. But this is why Jesus came. To bring us back into the presence of God. To make a way for us to know God and to be known by God. And the way he did that was through the cross where he lost the presence of God so that we could be brought in. Ephesians chapter 3 verses 14 to 19 says this, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. You know, we all want the rest that comes with living in the city of God. But left to ourselves, none of us can live there because our hearts are constantly pulling us toward the city of man, toward a life that opposes God, toward a life that opposes God's values and God's purposes. But with his blood, 
Jesus Christ bought for us citizenship in God's city and made a way for us to experience the joy of living in God's presence. Now many people think that living in God's city is just something that happens after we die. That here on earth, we just have to suck it up and live in the city of man. But pastor and author Tim Keller observes something very interesting about Genesis 4. He notices that in this story, the two cities coexist. Seth's family and Cain's family live in the same place. This means that as the people of God, we're called to be citizens of heaven here on earth. We are called to be a city within a city. We are called to be an alternative community marked by a different set of rules. It's what Jesus meant in Matthew chapter 5 when he said, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. And friends, we need to remember this now more than ever. In a world full of hate, can we the church be marked by radical love? In a world full of division, can we, the church, be marked by radical unity? In a world full of condemnation and judgment, can we, the church, be marked by radical empathy and compassion? And the gospel says, in Jesus Christ, we can. You know, this series has been personally so humbling for me. And partly it's because my heart still breaks. That as enlightened and civilized as we think we are in 2020, we're still dealing with the same problems we read about in Genesis 3 and 4. And if everything happening in our city and our nation is overwhelming, even for those of us who call ourselves Christians, I can't imagine how difficult this moment is for those of us who don't know how this story ends. You know, if you're tuning in today and you don't know Jesus, we're so glad you could join us. And I just want to reassure you that this isn't the way the story ends. What you're seeing on the news isn't the way the story ends. There is hope for this world. Because if the book of Genesis teaches us anything, it's that no matter how painful this moment feels, it's nothing new. Every page of scripture after Genesis 3 is full of story after story about humanity going off the rails, needing to be saved. And time and time again, God meets his people in their desperation and he delivers them. And we see the greatest example of this on the cross of Jesus Christ, which is God's guarantee to his people that no matter how dark it gets, no matter how bleak it gets, he is always with us and will never forsake us. And so for those of us today who are hurt, who are angry, who are heartbroken, who are feeling helpless, let's rest in that truth today because we know how this story ends. Let's pray. Gracious God, our nation is on fire. This week we have seen the pain and brokenness of our humanity reach a tipping point, and at times we feel so helpless and weak in the face of such cruelty and injustice. And in times like these, all we can do is cry out, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come. Heal our land, Lord. We pray over our city, a city that we love dearly, and we ask for your help, your guidance, and your protection. Teach us as a church to listen well, to love well, 
and to serve well in these turbulent times. You are our rock and our salvation. Our hope is in you. In Jesus' name, amen.